Greenwich Village. It's difficult to say exactly when Greenwich Village gentrified. It didn't happen in one fell swoop as it did for parts of the town, like the Bowery. New money came early to the village, so that by the 21st century, the doors to the neighborhood were already shut. Still, I include it here because it is where New York Bohemianism was born and from which it disseminated. The village also serves as an example of what happens to a neighborhood late in the hypergentrification process when vultures pick the last scraps of meat from its bones. Greenwich Village was a zone of rogues and outcasts from the start, according to John Strasbog in The Village, a center for New York's black community from the 1640s through the 1800s. It was home to working class Irish and Italians, along with prostitutes, female crossdressers, and fairies, as well as wealthy white families clustered in elegant townhouses around Washington Square. The neighborhood began attracting bohemians in the 1850s when Walt Whitman was hanging with the literary crowd at Pfaff's Beer Cellar on Broadway near Bleecker Street. In the 1910s came the first golden age with artists, writers, and assorted characters making their mark, including Eugene O'Neill, Edna St. Vincent Millay, Juna Barnes, and Joe Gold. Artists have long served, often unwittingly and unhappily, as urban attractors, exposing an undiscovered neighborhood to outsiders, drawing tourists and investors, thus raising the price of real estate. Some, who might be labeled Fohemians, actively participate in the process. This is not a new phenomenon. Strasbourg has detailed how new villagers began commercializing the left bank scene marketing the culture and themselves to tourists as early as 1915. As Malcolm Cowley put it, they had fled from Dubuque and Denver to escape the stultifying effects of a civilization ruled by business, only to open their own businesses, filling the village with tea shops, bookstores, nightclubs, and real estate offices. Immediately, newspapers and magazines proclaimed the end of village Bohemia. By 1917, wrote Strasbourg, the Times noted a growing exodus of artists from the neighborhood, driven out by the rising rents the new tenants were able to pay. And by 1922, the Times was reporting that artists were in full flight, replaced by well-dressed bourgeois people who had nothing to do with art. Said one painter to the Times, young artists are being forced out of the city by the hundreds. By the late 1920s, even the Christian Science Monitor had declared Greenwich Village too costly for artists to live there, as Bohemians were pushed out by mainstream Americans with middle-class money. And where were the newcomers coming from? The Midwest. Ladies Home Journal joked that the village was becoming the cob of the Corn Belt. After the 1920s, rising rents were pushed back by the Great Depression and World War II, making it possible for a second golden age to blossom, a renaissance of artists, iconoclasts, and queers. Exiles from America, seeking a refuge nothing like their hometowns, they fled to the village in droves to become the Beats, the Abstract Expressionists, the New York School poets. In his book, New York in the 50s, 
Dan Wakefield recalls moving to Jones Street in 1956, three years after the Partisan Review had declared the death of Bohemia thanks to new apartment buildings for the middle class replacing cold water flats. It wasn't easy, Wakefield recalls, to find an affordable place. Reasonable rentals, forget about cheap, were still possible but damnably scarce. By the 1960s, they'd become scarcer. The beatnik with beret and bongo drum had become a caricature in mainstream culture. He had also become a selling point. Tourists and Bohemians flooded the village yet again. Rents went up, but the radicals hung on. In his 1963 guide to the city, Q magazine editor Emery Lewis described how the neighborhood retained its artistic, revolutionary spirit even while well-heeled organization men from uptown were moving in, dressing like beatniks in their off hours, while their wives filled the parks with baby carriages. And well-manicured poodles. Lewis wondered, will the village become a pleasant, rich man's bohemia, with an arts and crafts quaintness, an easy tolerance for slight deviations from the norm, but with little or none of the fire and none of the intensity of the true artists? Has bohemia been housebroken? After the bohemians came the hippies, folk music. Bob Dylan and gay liberation. In the 1970s, while gay men engaged in raw sex on the Hudson River piers, financial crisis kept the rising rents at bay. They rose again in the 1980s and 90s when AIDS emptied the old village apartments and filled the hallways of St. Vincent's Hospital and then cemeteries, leaving vacated real estate for newly minted yuppies. That indispensable hospital would shutter in 2010 after 161 years of service, according to the Post. The Manhattan District Attorney's Fraud Unit investigated whether Honcho's purposely tanked its finances so it could be sold to a private developer. But the controversy soon evaporated. The hospital was demolished, and up went Greenwich Lane. A sprawling complex of ultra-luxury condos with prices as high as forty-five million. At its feet sits a shiny new park with an AIDS memorial, a piece of modern art inscribed with Walt Whitman quotes. For nearly a hundred years, with each passing decade, Bohemia had been declared dead, but every time she had rallied, hanging on to live another day, to birth another movement in art. Writing, music, dance. In the two thousands, however, the radical old village finally gave up the ghost. When I moved to the city, I thought I would live in Greenwich Village, but affordable apartments were no longer scarce; they were non-existent. Still, aching to be part of a scene already vanished, I searched the village for the bohemianism I longed for. I had read about White Horse Tavern. The place where writers once gathered, and Dylan Thomas whiskied himself to death. The first time I walked in, I was shocked to find a crowd of Wall Streeters in dark suits, making their animal herding noises around the bar. But if I went to the White Horse early in the afternoon, I could sit alone in the quiet middle room, under the portrait of Dylan Thomas, and nurse a pint of beer while writing poetry and chatting with an elderly woman. 
named Sunny, who also liked to sit in that room and nurse a drink or two. Sunny was such a regular, the white horse hung her framed photograph on the wall. She would tell me about her husband, a Hollywood screenwriter who specialized in bullfighting movies, and I would read her my poems. Over time, I would discover the few authentic places of the village that remained uncontaminated. But loving those bars, cafes, and restaurants has been a dangerous and painful affair. In the 2000s, it seemed that every time I fell for some place, it was snatched away, given over to a successful restaurateur to be gutted and glamorized. A virulent trend has been sweeping the village and the city in which upscale restaurateurs take over vintage spots, refurbish them, and turn them into exclusive locales, keeping their names and capitalizing on their history. It's an invasion of the body snatchers. The old places look like themselves, sort of. The old places look like themselves, sort of, but there's no soul inside. The blog Grub Street called the trend Faustalgia. It first happened to the Waverly Inn and the Beatrice Inn, prompting the Times to write about the practice in 2010. The village, they said, had become like a theme park of the past, as these restored standards offer a vision of a lost bohemian New York, albeit with a well-heeled clientele and prices to match. The Body Snatchers came next for the Mineta Tavern, originally opened in 1937, and long a hangout for writers, artists, and eccentrics, including Ernest Hemingway, Eugene O'Neill, and E.E. E. Cummings. The owner of Mineta's was forced to close in 2008 when the landlord hiked the rent and the lease went to neighborhood-changing restaurateur Keith McNally. He removed the walls of ragtag memorabilia, scoured it clean, and put it back shined, curated, and just so. He took away the red sauce Italian food and replaced it with French cuisine, plus the $28 black label burger. Any bohemians left in the neighborhood were unlikely to get in. Reservations were impossible, prices were high, and the bar was packed with posh people who looked like they were schmoozing at the Hampton Classic Horse Show Cocktail Hour, all knotted sweaters and blue blazers. A muscular bouncer guarded the door, offering visual discouragement to those of us whom the blog thrillist called the joints wizened, soon-to-be-muttering-outside, angrily ex-patrons. Still, I braved the new Mineta one evening, squeezing in early to see what it had become. When I took a seat at the bar, a woman in pearls snatched the stool between us, glaring as if daring me to challenge her. When her friend arrived, also in pearls, they commenced a grueling logshod discussion about the properly made Pim's cup. I looked away, scanning the meticulously recreated room, and noticed something missing. The old Mineta's house bohemian, as the great Joseph Mitchell called him, was Joe Gold, a.k.a. Professor Siegel, author of the mysterious oral history of our time. For decades, Gold's portrait had hung prominently on the wall across from the bar. That tobacco-stained oil painting of the toothless old man with wild gray hair and beard, mouth open to tell a tall tale, must not have fit the new clientele. 
Gold had been evicted. Fedora was another classic restaurant that fell. The first time I ventured under the pink and green lights of its battered neon sign, walking down the steps into the dark little Italian joint, I fell instantly in love. I had come home, it felt, to a halfway subterranean room lit by rosy light, walls covered with dusty memorabilia, playbills, and photos of handsome young men in mid-century black and white. The room was quiet, a few tables occupied by gray-haired gay men, either in couples or dining alone on the 1395 dinner special, a full-course meal that might consist of antipasto with iceberg lettuce, chicken tetrazzini, and homemade pie. The food was nothing special, but I didn't care. It was the place that mattered, the feeling of it. You knew it was special the minute you sat down to be greeted by George, the acerbic veteran waiter who snapped, Give me a hundred minutes, because I've only got two hands. Or on a later night, he would bark at me to eat your beets, adding sympathetically, sotto voce, I hate beets. You knew the place was special when Fedora Dorato, the restaurant's namesake and owner, made her nightly entrance, an event for which everyone put down their forks to give a delirious round of loving applause. She was a star. White-haired, slightly stooped, and elegant, Fedora would make her rounds, greeting everyone, many by name. And how are you tonight, Jane? She asked the woman who always sat at the bar, milking an enormous pink cocktail, served in what looked like a fish fishbowl on a stem. And how are you, my dear friend Charlie? She said to the tremulous elderly man who dined with his West Indian nurse by his side. Fedora didn't know me, but she placed a hand on my shoulder as she passed and gave me a warm welcome. I went back every chance I got. The restaurant had been in the family for many years, opened by Dorado's fa father-in-law as a speakeasy in 1919. After the repeal of Prohibition, Charles Dorado turned it into Charlie's Garden. When his son Henry took over, it was renamed Fedora after Henry's wife in 1952. In the days before and after gay liberation, the restaurant welcomed homosexuals, and into the 2000s, it remained an accessible, welcoming space for men of a certain age. A regular for 50 years, local historian Warren Allen Smith told me, Fedora's was definitely a refuge where the waiters were gay, you could camp it up and be yourself, and no problems occurred. He explained what was special about the place. Nowhere else is there such a bargain. Nowhere else can you use a rotary payphone. Nowhere else is change limited to installing a new light bulb. Nowhere else can you carry on a conversation with someone several tables away and others will join in. Nowhere else do you love being insulted by the witty waiter. Almost nowhere else can you find deviled eggs as an appetizer. But all of that vanished in the summer of 2010, when the increasingly frail Fedora was encouraged by her family to retire, and the place was rented to a new owner, the successful young restaurateur Gabriel Stillman. It seemed promising at first. When presenting his case for a liquor license transfer, reported the blog Eater, 
Stolman gave an eloquent speech on the history and importance of the eatery in that neighborhood. He appeared interested in preservation, and Fedora himself approved of him. As it was described, Eater continued, Fedora 2.0 will undergo a renovation similar to that of the Mineta Tavern. A few structural overhauls will be put in place, but the space will basically remain exactly as it appears today. That's not quite what happened. Once he got the liquor license, Stolman got renovated the place. He did keep and refurbish the antique bar, along with a few other choice items, but otherwise he changed the interior completely, outfitting the space with diamond-tufted leather banquettes and Richard Avedon prints. Just as McNally had done to Minetta's, he upscaled the menu from red sauce Italian to French cuisine and raised the prices high. The last time I saw Fedora Dorado, a few days before the closure, her place was packed with farewell wishers. She was busy clearing the tables of used plates and glasses. At 90, she still had her seemingly unstoppable energy. I asked her what she would do without the restaurant, and she replied, I don't know. Every day for 60 years, I baked and I cooked. Now what? One year after the restaurant left her hands, Fedora passed away. For a little while in homage, Stillman's drink menu featured a cocktail titled the Fedora Dorado, aka the Spirit of the West Village. It was a mix of grouse, scotch, cider, and cocchi americano, a favorite aperitif among craft bartenders. The drink sold for $12, nearly the cost of an entire full-course dinner at the old Fedora. As the faux-stalgia trend continued, New York Magazine wrote about how fashionable moneyed restaurateurs seemed to be in a race to acquire New York's oldest, most storied properties, as if some bloodthirsty crew were hunting down the last remaining survivors, like millionaire trophy hunters who pay to prey on endangered species so they can add a rare head to their collection. Uptown, the fashionable restaurateurs overhauled the wonderful Bill Gay's 90s in business since 1924. In the East Village, they tried to take John's of 12th Street, an Italian place unchanged since 1908. And back in Greenwich Village, they gutted Rocco Ristorante, yet another red, red sauce Italian joint, on Thompson Street since 1922. Run by the original Rocco's great-nephew, Antonio da Silva, the place was simple and affordable. In 2011, according to De Silva, the landlord raised the rent from 8000 to 18000 per month. We're fighting it, he told Eater. But the landlord gave the lease to Major Food Group, those successful young restaurateurs who created the gourmet beast of the San Gennaro feast. In the Times, Frank Bruni called them the newest darlings of the New York culinary set. With the same, it was going to be a bank argument we heard over CBGB. The team talked in the press about how they were saving Rocco's by keeping it an Italian restaurant and paying tribute to its history. People want to talk about New York vanishing, one told the Observer. I think we're rebuilding it. In the Times, 
Partner Jeff Zalaznik added, What's it going to become? A Chase? A Dwayne Reed? Renaming it Carbone, they turned Rocco into an exclusive simulacrum of its former self. Times restaurant reporter Jeff Gordonier called it engineered to conjure up the feeling of a lively night downtown, circa 1958. The middle of the last century, as interpreted by chic players from the early part of this one, complete with schnabel curated art on the walls and waiters in vintage-style uniforms by a high-end fashion designer. They even ripped out Rocco's antique tile floor and put in a new tile floor modeled on the idea of an antique. In fact, modeled on a floor in the film The Godfather. Why replace the real thing with a copy of a copy? No matter. Carbone was an instant success among the wealthy and the celebrated, like Kim Kardashian, Beyonce, and Jay-Z.